Welcome to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM, the Superstation, the Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. It is Wednesday, July 21st, 2021, and we are live. Hope everybody's doing well. It's been a very, very uh, busy day today. A lot going on. Uh, reviewing the content for today's show and uh, keeping up on uh, news stories that are taking place across the country. Uh, on today's show, we're going to continue uh, our discussion dealing with the uh, segregation wall that was built in 1941 in Detroit along the eight mile border in Northwest Detroit, eight mile of Wyoming. We talked about this some, uh, on Tuesday's show, there was a huge article from the, um, NBC news, which was done in conjunction, uh, done in conjunction with, uh, bridge Detroit built to keep black from white built to keep black from white. And this deals with, um, 80 years after segregation, a segregation wall rose in Detroit. America remains divided. That that's not an accident. And it deals with this wall that was built in 1941 to separate uh, Detroit from uh, some of the uh, white suburbs. And is called Burwood Wall, Eight Mile Wall or Wailing Wall. And this story deals with the segre segregation of opportunity as well and how which side of the wall you live on impacts the trajectory of your life as well and your ability to accumulate wealth also. So we're going to talk about that. Now, this uh, this story is also connected to uh, what happened with uh, Detroit City Council on uh, Tuesday, July 20th. Detroit City Council votes in favor of reparations commitment, okay, putting – uh, a reparations proposal on the um, August 3rd um, ballot, 2021 ballot, okay, here in Detroit. So we're going to discuss that um, also, okay. We'll talk about that as well because all this is connected. And the reparations proposal, uh, Detroit City Council has voted in favor of a reparations commitment it marks the first step toward what advocates view as applying a racial equity framework for Detroit's African-American community. The resolution was approved in just minutes by the Detroit City Council on Tuesday, July 20th. Council President Pro Tem uh, Mary Sheffield presented a three-page reparations proposal addressing the unfair treatment of African-Americans across the country and in Detroit. The document states that African-Americans have been consistently and widely impoverished by discriminatory wages in every sector of the economy. The document states that African-Americans have been consistently and widely impoverished by discriminatory wages in every sector of the economy regardless of credentials and experienced and experience based on property, income and wealth advantage. Now, this 
proposal coming from city council is directly related to the story that we talked about yesterday dealing with the wall built along uh built uh in 1941 uh along part of eight mile the burwood wall eight mile wyoming area northwest detroit and how this is all tied to segregation of opportunity even though you didn't have colored only signs in detroit you're still dealing with various forms of segregation and we talked about the uh homes that white people owned where in their deeds they had what are known as restrictive covenants and what these restrictive covenants is stated in their deeds in the deeds to, the, to their homes that they could not sell their homes to non-white people and this is designed to lock african americans out of buying these homes and being able to accumulate wealth and and uh, generational wealth through home ownership all right while at the same time being oftentimes locked out of taking advantage of loans from the Federal Housing Administration, FHA, and getting low interest loans to buy homes that were being built out in the newly formed suburbs in the 1950s and 60s. So we'll talk about this and then we're going to um, we'll get into the story that I have not been able to get to the past couple of days uh, dealing with the New York draft riots uh, of uh, July 13th, 1863, that lasted five days. The New York draft riots began Monday morning, July 13th, 1863, during the Civil War. And these were riots that took place, and they happened in Detroit as well as Boston also. But these took place because you had poor white men who were revolting uh, because uh, they were being, uh, they were revolting against the draft to fight in the Civil War. And they were revolting against the Conscript Conscription Act of 1863, signed in law by President uh, Abraham Lincoln. And with the Conscript Conscription Act of 1863, uh, this stated, this instituted the draft, and it uh, made all male citizens between ages 20 and 35, and all unmarried men between ages 35 and 45 subjected to military duty. However, wealthy white men could buy their way out of being drafted into the military to go fight in the Civil War by hiring a substitute to go fight in the war for them or by paying a $300 fine. Now, the $300 fine would be the equivalent to roughly $5,800 today. And the $300 fine was the was the uh, the yearly salary of the average American worker back in 1863. So you had this you, you had this uh, riot that took place in New York for five days. And these white men are are attacking federal property and attacking federal buildings. They are burning businesses. They're killing African-Americans, lynching African-Americans. And there's hundreds of people that are going to be killed in this five day riot. We're going to talk about this also on today's show as well. And I'll give you more information about the new exciting online course 
that starts up uh, Saturday, July 24th, that I'm teaching 10-week online course that I'm teaching Saturday, July 4th, 2021, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, 1865 to 1968. It's a 10-week online course. We have the information at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Um, and this is going to be a fantastic class. All right. Now, on the African History Network show, we focus on educating, empowering and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world, because right now it's corrects wrong behavior. What you do for yourself, what you do to yourself and what you allow other people to do to you and get away with is based upon what you think about yourself. What you think about yourself is based upon what you have been taught about yourself. What you've been taught about yourself is based upon everything you've read, heard and seen about yourself. So when you control the radius of a man or a woman's thoughts, you can control the covers of his or her actions because the mind can't do or teach what it doesn't know. Now, we deal with a number of different topics here on the African History Network show. We do with current events and history and politics, education, economic empowerment, entrepreneurship, relationships, love, sex, health issues and much, much more. Sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T, the 22828 to sign up for our email newsletter. Text the word Kemet, K-E-M-E-T the 22828 to sign up for our email newsletter. Also visit our website, uh, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com to sign up for our email newsletter uh, there as well. Okay. And uh, visit our website, also AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. We have the information there for the uh, 10-week online course uh, that I teach. And we we have the new course starting up. Uh, Saturday, July 24th, 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is uh, from the Civil War to Black Power. Okay, from the Civil from the Civil War. I'm sorry, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power. So, if you go to our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, scroll down the page, you'll see the information for our radio show. We're here six days a week. You can click right here to listen to audio podcasts of this show. Um, we have over a thousand audio podcasts, um, on blog talk radio, our blog talk radio page. And then we're also on iHeartRadio, CastBox, iTunes. We're on 10 different audio podcast platforms. Click here to read articles that are, that I've written. And we have information for the, uh, new 10 week online course from the civil war to the civil rights movement and black power. Uh, click here to register. It takes you to the next page and then. Uh, click on enroll. As soon as you enroll, you can start watching. Uh, we have some archive content you can watch and you'll be registered for the class. that starts up uh, Saturday, July 24th. OK, uh, I want to uh, go back to we're going to continue with uh, our topic from yesterday. There is a, a 14 page uh, extensive article that uh, NBC News did in conjunction with uh, Bridge Detroit. And the name of this piece is uh, Built to Keep Black from White. Built to Keep Black from White. Okay. And uh, this deals with this history of uh, this wall here in Detroit uh, along Eight Mile in Wyoming. Okay. The Eight Mile in Wyoming neighborhood. Uh, this was a, a, a six month investigation by NBC News and Bridge Detroit. Okay, so we talked about this uh, on yesterday's show. So you can go back and watch yesterday's show. We rebroadcast these shows and they're archived on our Facebook fan page, The African History Network, The African History Network, and uh, also on our YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotep, I M H O T E P. Okay, so uh, th- this 
this expose here, this is from July 19th, 2021, this article came out. Uh, they talk about uh, people who are now in their 70s and 80s who still live in the Detroit area, either Detroit or the suburbs, um, African-Americans and white, uh, white. They talked about Margaret uh, Watson, um, who uh, as a child in the late 30s, Margaret Watson had seen the new streets laid uh, down like a tic-tac-toe board in the open fields where her father once planted a garden the size of a city block. Um, she knew the streets had been had to be for white families, not for African-American families like hers. So she was not particularly surprised when in the spring in 1941, a six foot high, four inch thick, uh, half mile long concrete fortification suddenly appeared in her backyard. Okay, so we so they talk about Margaret Watson, they talk about people like Teresa Moon, and they talk about people who still live in the um community. Then it gets to uh dealing with um uh, things like accumulation of wealth and the and, and how people's lives are different depending upon which side of the wall um uh, depending upon all that they lived on. Now, in a six-month investigation, NBC News and Bridge Detroit discovered that one of Detroit's most prominent families built the wall and developed the adjacent white neighborhood. The reporting also examined the ways this single act of segregation has influenced generations of Detroiters. Now, this story here is connected to the story we'll, we'll, we'll deal with next, dealing with uh, the, the city of Detroit uh, approving the uh, reparations resolution to be on the uh, ballot, uh, the August 2021 uh, ballot. Okay. Um, th these stories are connected. All right. Because this is dealing with repairing the damage, not just of slavery, but a, uh, a legacy of slavery and decades of, of uh, segregation and African-Americans being locked out of opportunity, even though we didn't have colored only signs uh, here in Detroit. OK, even though we didn't have colored only signs uh, here in Detroit. OK, so let's continue here. Um, so, so the side of the wall, the side of the wall, these residents called home would later affect the sale price of their houses, the value of their next homes and eventually the wealth and eventually the wealth they might inherit from their parents. This ties into intergenerational wealth and being locked out of this and being locked out of being able to take advantage of government programs from the Federal Housing Administration and how the redlining system, which was created by the Homeowners Loan Corporation in 1937 is used to lock us out of opportunity. Now their experience in elementary school would determine the classes they took in high school their decisions about college or the military and the ease with which they achieved their goals. And throughout their lives, the friendships they made would frame their interactions with classmates and colleagues with doctors and law enforcement and social settings and in job interviews. We're coming up here on a break. Um, you listen to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM Superstation Future Radio. I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotel. We'll be back in a few minutes. 910, the Superstation, Detroit's only African-American talk radio. Welcome back to the African History Network show right here on 910 AM Superstation Future Radio. 
I'm your host, Brother Michael M. Hotep. It is Wednesday, July 21st, uh, 2021, and we are live. Okay, call in numbers 313-778-7600. 313-778-7600 is the call in number if you have a question or comment. Okay, so right before the break, we were talking about the, um, I was continuing our discussion from a Tuesday show and this um, fantastic article, this fantastic reporting from uh, NBC News in conjunction with Bridge Detroit. And this deals with the um, the segregation wall uh, that was built in 1941 here in Detroit along the eight mile border, uh, eight mile Wyoming area. Some people remember the movie Eight Mile about Eminem. Okay, that's the eight mile is the border between Detroit and uh, the white suburbs uh, built to keep black from white. Eighty years after a segregation wall rose in Detroit, America remains divided. That's not an accident. Eighty years after a segregation wall uh, rose in Detroit, America remains divided. That's not an accident. Okay. Now, if we continue here uh, with the article, and then we're going to go to that clip, uh, clip one in just a second here, Shakita. Um, so uh, they show, let's see here, they show uh, where the wall is uh, here in Detroit. Detroit uh, this is Detroit's Burwood Wall. It slices through the eight mile Wyoming neighborhood just below Eight Mile Road, Detroit's storied northern border. Okay. So it shows uh, Detroit's northern border, which separates Detroit from the suburbs. The concrete barrier runs in an alley behind residents' homes. Uh, the east side was originally a black neighborhood. So the east side of the wall is the African-American side. The west side is the white side. Depending upon which side you lived on, determine the trajectory of your life in many cases. Um, the white side was developed for white whites only. Okay, now, 80 years later, the wall itself, 80 years later, the wall itself now uh, brightly painted in parts with colorful murals no longer separates black from white. The discriminatory policies that made the wall possible have been outlawed. Uh, nearly all of the area's white residents left for the suburbs uh, decades ago. That's called white flight. Okay, that's called white flight. Uh, crossing nearby Eight Mile Road, which separates Detroit from its suburbs and has long symbolized the region's racial divide. As white families left, they made space for a black neighborhood of affordable homes to flourish. Now, this community, uh, Teresa Moon, 68 years old, who's featured in the clip that we're going to go to in just a minute here. Uh, she said this community was such a vi vibrant community. Um, and she moved to her house just east of the wall in 1959. She said we were so well connected. We had so much love. All right. Uh, I want to go to I want to go back to this uh, clip here. Uh, we shared the first part of it yesterday. Uh, let's go to, uh, to this clip. This this is uh, uh, from NBC News. Um, built to keep this is a, a segregation wall 
has stood in Detroit for 80 years. Residents don't want it taken down. Let's go to this clip. The wall is directly across the street from my house. I could stand in my front door or in my front living room window and I could see the wall. One question people always ask me is, do you want the wall to be torn down? No, I don't. The history of what went on, why it went on, and how we can change things, that history needs to be told. Hey, 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 do me a favor, uh, advance the clip to about the five-minute mark, and let's pick it up there. Advance the clip to the five-minute mark. Let's pick it up there. All right. Um, and here's a picture here uh, from this article as well. This is uh, 1941, the Burwood Wall that separated uh, an African-American neighborhood from undeveloped farmland. This is courtesy Detroit News. Okay, let's go back to the clip. What they did find was that the struggle continued and that while the restrictions in the South were very direct, the restrictions in the North may be a little more subtle, but they certainly, they were told that there were places where they could not go, could not live. Bernice and other activists fought this injustice, writing letters to public officials and lobbying the government until they won access to federal loans and mortgages for the community in 1944. Because of their work, more than 1,500 black residents bought and built homes in the neighborhood. Among those were Teresa and her family. It wasn't so much that they were making a point around whether or not they cared whether or not they had a white neighbor. It was fundamentally that they should have the choice to live where they wanted to live. Her view was that as a black family, the right thing to do was to give them the opportunity to live in a home. That is just like a basic right. And in 1948, a Supreme Court case ruled against racially restrictive housing covenants, like the ones that prevented black families from buying houses west of the wall. But as black residents began to move in on both sides of the wall, white residents fled to the nearby suburbs. In the decades since, what was once a vibrant black community was hit hard. The city saw a complex mix of challenges, factory closures, racial tensions, job loss, bankruptcy. Over time, the black middle class fled the city, and the housing crisis took its toll on 8 Mile, along with the rest of Detroit. It's changed a lot. A lot of houses are vacant around here, in disrepair. There's a lot of empty spaces, a lot of empty houses. When our family first moved out here, the majority of the people were homeowners. What I learned as being a homeowner, watching my parents and the people in this community, is that you take care of your space. I'm going to the park every day. That's what I do. I wanted to remain clean. I wanted to be nice. The kids always ask me if I own the park. Yeah, I got one at the house. You want to walk over there with me? Yeah. And I just tell the kids, no, it's not mine. It's our park. So you see me picking up trash. If you see trash on the ground, or if you have trash, just go throw it away. Y'all know what to do with that trash, don't you? Do I tell them about the wall? Yes, I do. Do they listen? No. <laughs> 
kids are really interested. And these kids now are some different. While other relics of segregation, like Confederate monuments in the South, have been toppled in recent years, many here say they don't want the wall to be torn down. I think people feel differently about this wall than they do about other symbols because, for one thing, there's a beautiful mural on the wall that depicts something positive. It depicts happiness, togetherness, joy, peace, love, whereas other walls gave a sense of something dark and ugly. Even though the Burwell Wall has that same connotation, the mural on the wall changes your mind a little bit when you look at it. In February, the National Park Service added the Burwood Wall to the National Register of Historic Places. I suspect there are stories like this all over the country, and I think increasingly we have to extract their stories, we have to incorporate them into our history books. I think we have to teach kids, give them a sense of place, and you do that by letting them know what's down the block. Last summer was more than just a reckoning, I think it was an awakening, and the wall the Burwood Wall is an example of how far we've come and maybe how far we still have to go. My son has said to me quite a few times, Mom, why don't you move? I don't even see the sense in that. I love living here. How you doing, baby? Hey, sweetie. My level of commitment to this neighborhood, there is no way to measure it. <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. There's nothing that can make me leave. I live and breathe this neighborhood. I do anything for it. Anything. All right. So that was um, excellent reporting from uh, NBC News in conjunction with Bridge Detroit. Um, that's this uh, extensive article um, built uh, um, built to, to keep black from white, built to keep black from white uh, from NBC News. And let's go to the top of it here. Uh, built to keep black from white 80 years after a segregation wall ro rose in Detroit. America remains divided. That's not an accident. And when they referenced uh, last summer, they're talking about summer 2020, the protests uh, behind the killing of George Floyd, the Black Lives Matter protests, things like this. Uh, I want to go if we go to another uh, part here in the uh, in this article. And we're going to go to clip uh, two here in just a minute. Um, one, two, look, let's see. This is. um There's another portion here, the, 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 the Blackstone development. It talks about the Blackstone development, which was um, this development uh, by uh, a white uh, developer who puts the uh, who, who, who erects the wall to get uh, federal funding. OK, Blackstone, Blackstone, number six, the super subdivision with the big future guarded clo uh, close in. Uh, let's look at this here. Um, the 300 acre subdivision has the restrictions 
that bring demand for home sites surrounded by other high-grade properties. It is guarded from inferior types of buildings. Um, Myers Road, only a direct route to River Rouge Industries, runs through the property. Eight Mile Road, Monier, uh, uh, State Fair, Wyoming Superhighway, Seven Mile, Outer Drive, and Northwestern are all about, are all about Blackstone number six. Okay. So if we look at this here, um, Blackstone Park number six. This is this uh, development. Let me see here. This is this uh, development here, Blackstone uh, Park number six. The vision for this part of Detroit was grand. The super subdivision with the big future crowned an ad that ran in the Detroit Free Press in 1925. The super subdivision with the big future. This was the ad that ran in the Detroit Free Press newspaper in 1925 over a sketch of elegant homes nestled among shade trees. The ad for the Blackstone Park number six subdivision promoted low prices, uh, low prices financing and, quote, the restrictions that bring demand for home sites, end quote. OK. And once again, this is uh, this is this ad here. It ran. Uh, let me see. This is the ad here that ran in uh, 1925 in the Detroit Free Press, and it shows a sketch of um, the the subdivision. Now, those restrictions almost invariably included race, said Thomas Segrew. The Thomas Segrew a New York University historian who wrote a book about race and inequality in Detroit. Okay. And I, I learned about Thomas Agrew when we were going through this fake bankruptcy here in uh, Detroit. Uh, and I read um, some of his book dealing with this. I haven't had a chance to finish the book, but his book is the origins of the urban crisis, race and inequality in post-war Detroit, the origin of the urban crisis race and inequality in post-war Detroit. Okay. That's by Thomas Segrew. Um, if we go back to this article here, uh, he, so he, uh, Thomas Segrew is a New York university historian who wrote a book about race and inequality in Detroit, living there required white skin, living there required white skin. Now, despite the developers division, Blackstone park number six, was slow to become a reality. Federal lenders at the time relied on color on color coded maps that deemed some white neighborhoods safe investments, shading them blue or green, while others were shaded red, meaning hazardous. And this is dealing with redlining. We talked about redlining yesterday, okay, which goes back to uh, 1937 and uh, the Homeowners Loan Corporation. Read this piece here from uh, blackpast.org, blackpast.org on redlining. And it deals with how redlining was created by the federal government. It's adopted by um, uh, banks and uh, insurance companies. And it's, it was used against African-Americans to lock us out of being able to 
uh, use government programs to to buy homes and buy property, things like this. Okay, the redlining system. All right, now. Uh, despite the developer's division, Blacks, uh, Blackstone Park Number Six was slow to become a reality. Federal lenders at the time relied on color-coded maps that deemed some neighborhoods safe investments, shading them blue or green, while others were shaded red, meaning hazardous. Now, the practice known as redlining, the practice known as redlining, which was created by the federal government, forced people living in red zones to borrow money, to borrow money at higher interest rates or resort to predatory lenders. It remains a majority reason why African-Americans whose neighborhoods were nearly always shaded red to uh, today have about one tenth of the household wealth of white Americans. Thomas Agrew said he's absolutely correct. This goes back to history and goes back to the federal government. It remains the redlining and being locked out of being able to acquire homes during this period of time, uh, the 50s and 60s and things like this, being able to buy homes without having to go to predatory lenders, without having to resort to predatory lenders, being able to take advantage of the 3% down or low interest loans that the federal uh, housing administration uh, was offering to white people. Okay. Being able to fully take advantage of the GI bill and things like this. Uh, if we, if we go back and look at the piece from in these times.com uh, and we talked about this yesterday, uh, they, they dealt with the uh, federal housing administration. And this talks about uh, the, uh, 1949. Okay. Now this, this article, they changed the name of this article. I read this article back when the bankruptcy was taking place, all this stuff. And, um, the, the fake bankruptcy that took place here in Detroit, emergency manager, all that stuff orchestrated by the federal government, orchestrated by governor Snyder and all that. Uh, name of this article is a half century after Detroit uprising cities still stranded by capitalism and federal government. The original name of this article, because I have the original article printed, the original name of this article, this is by Marilyn Katz. It's an excellent article, August 8th, 2013. Okay. The original name of this article was called um, uh, Detroit's Downfall. Detroit's Downfall, Beyond the Myth of Black Misleadership. Google, Google that, Google that uh, title. The original name of this article was called Detroit's Downfall. Beyond the myth of black misleadership, because what the Oracle is showing is that when Coleman Alexander Young in January 1974 was sworn in as mayor, when African-Americans became mayors of other big cities, those cities were already on life support. White people had already started fleeing the cities. Businesses had already started leaving the cities, things like this. Detroit had its first budget deficit in 1961. That's six years before the Detroit rebellion. Okay. Coleman Alexander Young did not run white people out of Detroit. They were leaving before the uh, 1967 rebellion started. And by, and by August of 67, by August of 67, um, 300,000 people had already left Detroit, basically white people. And they're moving out to the suburbs. But there's one piece here I want to 
zone in on because when we understand this history, we understand politics is the legal distribution of scarce wealth, power, and resources, and the writing of laws, statutes, ordinances, amendments, and treaties, their adoption, interpretation, and enforcement. And we see the role that the federal government has played through laws and policies. White workers follow. So they're talking about this um, uh, with the uh, along with the auto industry went jobs. In 1960, only Chrysler. In 1960, only Chrysler produced cars in Detroit. It's 60,000 Detroit workers representing only half those employed just a decade earlier. In less than two decades from 1947 to 1967, Detroit lost 128,000 jobs in the auto industry. Okay, this is this 20 year period of time. This is before uh, Mayor Coleman Alexander Young. 1947 to 1967. Now, white workers followed. White workers followed. The jobs are leaving. White workers are following. And they're leaving. And see, this is all after World War II. See, this after World War II is a critical period of time. And, and um, we're going to deal with this in in the um, 10 week online course that I'm going to teach uh, starting uh, Saturday, July 24th, uh, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power. Because we, um, as the Great Migration is taking place and more African Americans are moving from the South up north. You're having these racial conflicts in the areas that they're moving into, racial conflicts with white people. After the war, after World War II ends and you have the baby boomer generation and you have the, the, these men coming back home, they're having children. Now they need now they need to move out of the places that they're in now, the small cramped uh, apartments or what have you, and they need to buy homes for, for families. OK, so you're going to have. Uh, uh, white people moving out to suburbs and they're using federal loan programs to buy these homes out in the suburbs. Then you're going to have businesses moving out to the suburbs as well. Then you're going to have the the Interstate Highway Acts, the Federal Interstate Highway Acts in 1952 and 1956 that drive 41,000 miles of U.S. interstate highways and is going to run through all across the country, run through about 1,600 African-American communities, and it's running expressways from the downtown business district out to the suburbs to where white people are, are, are moving to, and it's running through African-American communities, wiping out homes that we own, wiping out businesses that we owned, et cetera. It ran right through, the I-375 ran right through Black Bottom and uh, Paradise Valley right here in Detroit, wiping out homes, wiping out businesses. And we're going to see this across the country. We see this in Tulsa, Oklahoma, in the Greenwood District. And the expressways are going to run through in 1970. Um, uh, interstate, uh, uh, it, was, it was interstate, I think, 244. Uh, and then you have a, a U.S. highway. They're going to run through and wipe out some of the remaining black-owned businesses there and wipe out land that we own. Oh, in 1970, we're going to see this take place across the country. So when we talk about the infrastructure bill that's being debated now, there's 20 billion in the infrastructure bill to try to at least start addressing some of this damage that was done by these federal programs, these federal interstate highway acts that helped to, to destroy African-American communities. All right. Now, uh, if we go back to this piece here, it says um, white workers followed. White workers followed the auto jobs that were leaving. 
from 1947 to 1967. Now, 1947, it's just two years after World War II ends. That's four years after the Detroit race ride in 1943 up and down Woodward Avenue, which took place during World War II. Huge race ride as well. So we're going to see these, these racial tensions explode, okay, uh, uh, in, in the North as more African Americans move into these different cities. Now, in 1950, Detroit was dominated. Well, in 1950, Detroit was a white-dominated city. By 1970, more whites lived in the suburbs of Detroit than in the city of Detroit. While ignited by the movement of auto jobs to the suburbs, this mass white exodus was fueled by the federal government and its policies. Okay, so when they talk about now, I'm not saying African-American mayors and city council members didn't make mistakes. Yes, they did. But so did white people. So did white mayors and city council members. But they leave out how the federal government helped to sabotage what took place. So then when we take over these cities, they're already on life support. They're already on life support in in, in the role the federal government play gets left out of this. This mass exodus was fueled by the federal government and its policies. In 1949, Congress passed the Federal Housing Act, the FHA, the Federal Housing Act. 1949, five, four years after World War II ends, for the first time, home ownership required only 3% down for an attractive low interest rate mortgage. 3% down for an attractive low interest rate mortgage. So white people, are, uh, white men, basically, using this to buy homes in the newly formed suburbs. The, the Federal Housing Act guidelines favored mortgages in the new suburban developments that were popping up to meet post-war, post-World War II demand and actively discourage their use in older inner city neighborhoods where African-Americans had moved into and were being left in while you have, and you're going to have the hollowing out of the, uh, uh, of the uh, industrial uh, infrastructure in these inner cities. So these businesses and factories are going to move, leave the inner cities and move out to the suburbs as well. Armed with new Federal Housing Act, FHA produced, uh, armed with the new Federal Housing Act product and veterans affairs loans, white workers moved with the companies to the suburbs, trading in their houses in what had become a racially mixed city city of Detroit, a racially mixed city for a suburban tract home in then virtually all white neighborhoods rather than congregate with others on the way to work in a streetcar, They drove past sprawling suburbs on the new highways lobbied for by the big auto industry and the big three General Motors, Ford and Chrysler lobbied for the expressways that ran through our communities and destroyed homes and destroyed businesses and and land taken by eminent domain. And these highways were built at taxpayer expense and to the detriment of the African-American community. For black Detroit, the story was quite different. 
Nearly 200,000 African Americans have moved to Detroit since 1930, and by and by 1950, blacks accounted for 16.8 percent of the population of Detroit. We're gonna go to clip two, so get that ready. Dealing with reparations in Detroit. While they might have wanted to follow the jobs that moved to the suburbs, they could not. While they might have wanted to follow the jobs that moved to the suburbs, they could not. With equal housing laws still in the future, they were excluded. African-Americans were excluded from buying in the suburban housing developments by developers and real estate agents, even though our taxpayer dollars are subsidizing these government programs that white people are using to accumulate wealth. Nor could they get, nor could they get FHA loans, Federal Housing Act loans, to buy or improve homes in the city neighborhoods where they could live because the government considered such loans too risky because they're using the redlining system, which was created by the Homeowners Loan Corporation, which was a federal entity, and they're using this to lock us out of economic opportunity. Now, some of the same white people who took advantage of these programs are part of that 40 percent of white people that uh, the Gallup poll uh, uh, study showed uh, April 4th, 2018, the 50th, 50th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. King. They said black people, 40 percent of white Americans surveyed said African-Americans could be as equally as successful as white people if they just tried harder. Maybe if we had the same programs that you took advantage of and our taxpayer dollars subsidized, maybe we can be equally successful also. Why don't you try that? Nor could they get FHA loans to buy or improve homes in the city neighborhoods where they could live because the government considers such loans too risky. African-American neighborhoods already chopped up during the 40s and 50s to build the very highways that took whites out of the city. And those jobs to build the highways went largely to white men, too. Let's just be honest. Became even more isolated and isolating, making things worse as federal dollars were transferred to road building public transit dollars dried up and in 1956 with the active lobbying of big auto the auto industry the big three general motors ford and chrysler the historic streetcar system in detroit disappeared leaving no reliable public transportation let's go to this clip two here this deals with uh the reparations resolution that passed city council on tuesday let's go to this clip Council has voted in favor of a reparations commitment. It's a first step toward what advocates see as applying a racial equity framework for Detroit's black community. For the latest, we turn to local force Larry Spruill, live outside City Hall tonight with more. Larry. Good evening, Kimberly and Devin. This proposal was presented by Councilwoman Mary Sheffield earlier today. Now, it's three pages long, but very detailed. It outlines the proposal itself, who will benefit from it, and how. Take a listen. Member Aaron moved the resolution. Are there any objections? Hearing none, the resolution is approved. Approved in just minutes from Detroit City Council on Tuesday. Council President Pro Tem Mary Sheffield presented a three-page reparations proposal addressing the unfair treatment of black people across our country, especially here in Detroit. 
The document states black people have been consistently and widely impoverished by discriminatory wages paid in every sector of the economy, regardless of credentials and experience based on property, income, and wealth advantage. Now city council is trying to right that wrong. They're following other cities who pass a similar bill, like Asheville, North Carolina, Evansville, Illinois, St. Paul, Minnesota, and Durham, North Carolina. The bill also states the Choice City Council demands a strong and sufficient United States federal government program funding commitment to reparations, funding programs that should be administered at the local level. We're talking about right to water and sanitation, right to environmental health, right to live free from discrimination, right to recreation, right to access and mobility, and right to housing, just to name a few. And so here are the next steps. This proposal will now be presented in front of the Elections Commission if they decide to vote on it and make sure that all the requirements are met, legal requirements are met, then it will be placed on the ballot in November. We are live outside City Hall tonight. Larry Sproul, local 4. Okay. All right. That's courtesy of uh, WDIV Channel 4 here in Detroit. Uh, check out their article. They have some good reporting on this. Uh, this uh, Detroit City Council votes in favor of reparations commitment. City Council is following other cities who passed a similar bill. This ties directly in. Th- the reason why you have to repair the damage ties directly into the, the, the story dealing with the uh, the wall built in Detroit and how we were locked out of economic opportunities, uh, largely locked out of economic opportunities. This article is from July 20th, 2021. All right. Uh, those watching on our Facebook fan page, the African History Network, the African History Network and our YouTube channel, Michael M. Hotel. Keep watching. We're going to uh, keep broadcasting for a few more minutes. We'll talk about the New York draft ride of uh, 1863. Uh, be sure to visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Register for the new 10-week online course uh, that's starting up Saturday, July 24th, 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, from the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power. Uh, we're going to do it 1865 to uh, 1968. And we do the class live. All the sessions are recorded, and you can go back and watch the content over and over again as soon as you register this bonus content that you can start watching also. The class is regularly $130 on sale, $80 at AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. Remember, right now is correct your own behavior. It's not over till we win. We're kind of forever, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Peace. All right, stand by. Stand by, everybody. Hold on. Let me disconnect this call. Okay. All right, so register for this class. Who still needs to register for this uh, 10-week online course? Uh, and this is the first time I taught this one. This is fantastic. Uh, a lot of information that I've been dealing with here, this is going to be in this class. It's going to be more extensive. What what we're going to do is um, each – this is a 10-week online course. So each week – it meets on Saturdays, 10 consecutive Saturdays. Each week what we'll do – is we'll analyze an approximately 10-year period of time in history. We're starting in 1865 with um, 40 acres and a mule, special field order number 15, 40 acres and a mule, and um, uh, the end of the Civil War, April 9th, uh, 1865, and assassination of Abraham Lincoln, April 14th, 1865. We'll look at uh, Juneteenth, June 19th, 1865. Uh, the ratification of the 13th Amendment, December 6th, 1865. 
and we'll, go, uh, we'll look at the Reconstruction era, 1865 to 1877. Advancements African-Americans are making, acquiring land, uh, being elected to Congress, being elected to the U.S. Senate, et cetera. Then we'll, then we'll look at the, um, um, we'll look at the, the end of Reconstruction and the Compromise of uh, 1877 and how we're going to see a reversal uh, of these rights and the rise in domestic terrorism. Uh, Plessy versus Ferguson, 1896 U.S. Supreme Court case, which uh, legalizes separate and uh, equal and legalizes Jim Crow laws. Mississippi State Constitution, 1890. Um, Louisiana State Constitution, 1898, Grandfather Clause of 1898. And the Mississippi State Constitution of 1898, what this does is this legalizes, they, they write into the Constitution, the Mississippi, state of Mississippi, the poll taxes and literacy tests, okay? And other Southern states are going to adopt state constitutions like this, Alabama and the different things like this. So we see this play out in uh, the movie Selma, dealing with the fight for the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll deal with uh, all that and we'll go through our history and go into the early 1900s, um, the Great Migration, 1915 to 1970, World War One, 1914 to 1918, World War II, U.S. getting involved in World War II, 1941 to 45, the post-war era, what happens after that, the racial tensions, us being locked out of uh, taking advantage of these government programs like I was just talking about. So we'll go through our history and then we'll go into the civil rights movement uh, and the Brown versus Board of Education, 1954. Um, the uh, lynching of Emmett Till, uh, 1955, August 28th, 19, August 28th, 1955. Uh, Montgomery bus boycott, um, December 1955, all of that uh, civil rights movement and then the Black Power Movement and the Black Power Movement coming out of SNCC Student Nonviolent Coordinated Committee. OK, so we'll go through history and each class we're going to analyze a, an approximately 10 year period of time to understand what happened after slavery. OK, understand what happened after slavery, the laws and policies that 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 were put in place and how we got to where we are today to understand where we need to go after this. It was laws and policies that put us in this predicament is going to be laws and policies that get us out of this predicament. Okay. Contrary to popular belief it's not going to be economic empowerment that gets us out of this predicament. Economic, economic empowerment is important, but that's not how we got here. So a lot of people that preach economic empowerment don't really understand the history of how we got here. All right. We have to leverage our economics to enforce our political agenda. And we see we'll see economics and politics coming together. We have to leverage our economics to enforce our politics. But but thinking the solution to bad public policies is economic empowerment means you don't understand either one of them. Thinking that the solution, the bad public policies, this, all this is the result of bad public policies, laws and policies. You have to understand their their impact and effect. To think the solution to bad public policies is economic empowerment means you really don't understand either one of them. Solution to bad public policies is follow the politicians that keep writing the bad public policies, run better candidates, pass better laws that are beneficial to you so you can reverse this. Economic empowerment is important. My degree is in business administration. I'm not saying it's not, but I'm saying that economic empowerment is not the prescription to the, to, to the ailment of bad public policies. That's what I'm saying. Okay.
Uh, so register for that online course. We'll post the uh, link here. And as soon as you go to our website, uh, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, scroll down the uh, homepage of our website. You can start and you can uh, register there. Click, uh, click on register here. It takes you to the next page and uh, it takes you to the next page and then click on enroll. Okay. Take you to our online school. Click on enroll. As soon as you register, you start watching. Uh, we have some bonus content there. We have the first three classes of the uh, other 10-week online course that I teach. Uh, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, understanding the transatlantic slave trade, what they didn't teach you in school. Okay. So if you've taken that 10-week online course before, Ancient Kemet, the Moors, and the Ma'afa, uh, this class will pick up where that one left off. All right. This class will pick up with that one left off. If you haven't taken the other one, you can register for that because we have a uh, a uh, we have a Sunday course. Uh, Sunday course has just started up for ancient Kemet, the Moors and the Ma'afa. That that class is Sunday, 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. that I teach also. But we have it at our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. All right. Let's continue here. Okay, how's everybody doing? Who still needs to register for this new online course that starts up uh, Saturday, July 24th? Let me know if you need to register, if you need me to post the information again. All right, we've got Kenya, Latreya, Greg, Joey, Ruby, Adrian, just a few of the people watching. All right, let's continue. I want to go to, um, I want to switch gears and uh, get to this information dealing with the New York draft riot. This information dealing with reparations here in Detroit is really important and it and it, it deals with reparations is not winning the lotto, is not cut the check, it's re understanding, it's repairing damage that was done, as especially a legacy of slavery and Jim Crow segregation. It's understanding repairing the damage that was done. And 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 the um and at the same time, you also have to change the laws that are still in existence that help that are still inflicting damage as well. Okay. So unfortunately, a lot of people think reparations is just a check. No, it's not just a check. The reason why is because every year we talk about how 97% of our dollars are spent with people that don't look like us. So if we all get $250,000 a day or 10,000 or a hundred thousand or whatever it is, white people have it all back by this time next week. And you wouldn't have anything, you wouldn't have done anything to address the damage that was done and deal with the racial and deal with the racial wealth gap and how it came to existence. You have to change those laws and policies. If you think it's just if you think reparations is just a check, once again, however much we get today, white people are gonna have it all back by this time next week. Only thing we would have done is stimulated their economy and all those laws and policies that are still in place inflicting harm upon us will still be there. That's why we have to focus on repairing the damage that was done, but you first have to assess the damage that was done. That's why the study is so important. That's why in Everston, Illinois, what they did in, in the housing program that they have there, that's to address a, uh, pervasive history of redlining in Evanston, Illinois. Now I interviewed um, fifth ward, all the woman, Robin Ruth Simmons, who, who uh, has left that position now, but I interviewed her, her here on the show for an hour. And that uh, episode is archived. You can go back and watch it. I interviewed her for an hour and we went through step-by-step step and broke all this stuff down. And she talked about how the, the program that they had, uh, the, the program that they came up with 
um, was to address redlining because in Evanston, Illinois, they did not have a history of slavery in Evanston, Illinois. Evanston, Illinois was founded in the 1840s. Slavery was abolished in the state of Illinois in 1818. This is why you had to do research and understand history. And their study, this is the study here that their program was based upon. Okay, so I've read a lot of the study to prepare for my interview with her. And in doing research, you know, when I was talking, when I talked to her on the phone, like to set up the interview, I was saying, you know, I've been doing research on Everson, Illinois. I hear all these people saying, oh, this is not reparations because they should address slavery. I said, I haven't found any evidence that slavery ever existed in Everson, Illinois. She said, you know, I'm so glad you said that because there's a whole lot of people out here talking, putting stuff out and haven't done any research. They didn't have a history of slavery in Everson, Illinois, but they had a pervasive history of redlining. And that's what their, their program is designed to address. Now, it's the first part of that program. It's not all that they want to do. It's the first part of that. But this, the name of the study is Evanston Policies and Practices Directly Affecting the African-American Community, 1900 to 1960 and Present. Okay, this is the is a 70-page study that was done in 2020 that documents the history of what happened and how devastating the redlining system was to African-Americans in um, Evanston and the racial discrimination they faced there even before the even before the, the term redlining came into existence. Uh, the first African-American residents in Evanston came in 1855 and he suffered discrimination. OK, so that's why they did what they did. All right. Now. If we switch gears here and look at the um, New York draft riot of uh, 1863, okay? There was a article from uh, Zen Education Project. Zen Education Project um, has a piece from uh, dealing with this July 13th, 1863, July 13th, 1863, the uh, New York draft riot. And this takes place during the Civil War, uh, which is a really, really pivotal time in the history of this country. But this is, takes place during the Civil War after the uh, Emancipation Proclamation and is going to change the trajectory of the Civil War. The Emancipation Proclamation changes the trajectory uh, of the Civil War and the purpose of it, okay? So I wanna go to this piece here. Um, let me pull this up here. A New York draft riot. And you're going to have a poor white man rebelling against uh, the draft and they don't wanna go fight in the Civil War on behalf of the union and you know they're afraid that if the slaves are freed also that the slaves are going to take their jobs as well now you know at the same time it's important to understand that the slaves are already doing their jobs and doing it for free because there are at least 262 skills trades and crafts that um african people had in this country from 1619 to 1865 and we were in working in all these industries 
okay, and, and doing this for free. Also, if you like this type of information, uh, you can support the African History Network, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App, also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. We're here six days a week. This helps us keep doing the research, stay on the air, uh, keep broadcasting, uh, pay some of the bills, etc. Uh, this is our official cash app account, dollar sign, the AHN show, S-H-O-W. And this it show my name there, Michael, and show my picture there also. These other ones, these are fake uh, African History Network cash app accounts that were set up. I'm trying to get them shut down. I already contacted cash app. They're like really slow in uh, taking care of things like this. Okay. And also uh, through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the AHN show. All right, let's look at this here from uh, the Zen Education Project. Um, so the, the the riot lasted uh, five days, started Monday morning, July 13th, 1863. And uh, the first draft took place July 11th, 1863. So, uh, on this anniversary of the New York City draft riots and massacre, because estimates are between 199 and 1,100 people were killed, many of them African Americans. Uh, we are sharing. Uh, okay, see. Okay. Um, so, in Chapter Ten of a People's History of the United States, Howard Zinn. Uh, talked about the Conscription Act of 1863. Okay, Conscription Act of 1863. Now, this uh, riot lasted nearly a week, and uh, the riots were the largest civil insurrection in, the, in U.S. history besides the Civil War itself at the time. Uh, the Conscription Act of 1863 provided that Rich, pe rich white men could avoid military service. They could pay $300 or buy a substitute person, white man, to go serve in the military, go serve in the Civil War, go fight in the, in the, in the military. In the summer of 1863, a song of conscripts, a song of conscripts was circulated by the thousands in New York and other cities. One stanza of this song said, we're coming, Father Abraham, 300,000 more. We leave our homes and firesides with bleeding hearts and sore. Since property has been our crime, we bow to thy creed. We are the poor and have no wealth to purchase liberty. Okay, so they can't buy their way out of this. They have to pay the three hundred dollar fine to go to prison. They can't buy their way out of this like white men can, like wealthy white men can. Now, when recruiting for the army began in July eighteen sixty three, a mob in New York wrecked the main recruiting station. Then, for three days, crowds of white workers, uh march through the city of New York, destroying buildings, 
factories, streetcar lines, and homes. The draft riots were complex. Now, these were uh, the, the, the riots were anti-African American, anti-black. They were against the wealthy, anti-rich, anti-Republican. Republican Party at the time was basically the party of abolitionists. We're going to see this flip beginning with the Lily White movement in 1928, which culminates with the completion of the party realignment in the late 1960s. From an assault on draft headquarters, the rioters went on to attacks on wealthy homes, then to murder, then to the murder of African-Americans. They marched through the streets, forcing factories to close, recruiting more members of the mob. They marched through the streets, forcing factories to close, recruiting more members of the mob. They set the city's colored orphan asylum on fire. OK, uh, now in reading another account of this, they didn't uh, harm any of the children, but they did steal food and and, and bedding and different things like this from the orphanage, okay? Uh, and they set the orphanage on fire also. It was, it was a colored orphanage there in um, uh, uh, New York City. This is a uh, picture here from Harper's Weekly. This is a picture here of Harper's Weekly of uh, the burning of the orphanage. This is uh, a... Uh, Yes, yeah, it's, it's this is a drawing here uh, of the burning of the orphanage. Uh, this is from 1863. All right, now. Okay, let me try to pull this up here, just a second. Okay, let's continue here. Okay, so um, so the the draft riots were anti-black, anti-rich, anti-republican. They set uh, the city's colored orphan asylum on fire. They shot, burned, and hanged African Americans they found in the streets. Many people were thrown into the rivers to drown. On the fourth day of the riots, and these riots last for five days. On the fourth day of the riots, Union troops returning from the Battle of Gettysburg came into the city and stopped the rioting. Perhaps 400 people were killed. Now, this is according to Zen Education Project. Uh, we're going to look at the information from history.com because history.com uh, uh, says basically Officially, it was said 199 people were killed, 119 people were killed, 119 people were killed. That was uh, 119 deaths were published, but it's estimated as high as 1,200 people were killed. Now, uh, on the fourth day 
of these riots, Union troops returned from the Battle of Gettysburg uh, and came into the city and stopped the rioting. Now, perhaps 400 people were killed. No exact figures have ever been given, but the number of lives lost was greater than in any other incident of domestic violence in U.S. history. Okay, uh, that's up until um, probably the Tulsa Race Massacre 1921. Because the official counts there are 300, and that came from the Red Cross, but it's estimated that hundreds more were killed. Now, just a second here. Um, okay, I want to look at the uh, information here from. I want to look at the information here from uh, history.com. History.com is a really good article um, dealing with this. Uh, New York draft riots, New York draft riots from history.com. Uh, the New York draft riots of 1863 occurred uh, the New York draft riots occurred in July, 1863, when the anger of working class New Yorkers, the anger of working class New Yorkers over a new federal uh, draft law uh, during the civil war sparked five days of some of the bloodiest and most destructive rioting in U S history. Hundreds of people were killed, many more injured and African-Americans were often the target of the rioters. OK, now New York City, um, New York City was divided before the Civil War uh, as the business capital of the nation, business capital of the United States. New York City had not welcomed the onset of the Civil War as it meant losing the South as a trading partner. Because you had a lot of factories up north and they're getting raw materials coming from the south like cotton. They're getting that and they are uh, they, the, the, the north is relying upon the south for raw materials, for instance. Uh, the cotton was an extremely valuable product for New York's merchants before the Civil War. Cotton represented 40 percent of all the goods out of uh, the city of New York's port. Before the Civil War, cotton represented 40% of all the goods shipped out of the city's port. And long after the slave trade was the international transatlantic slave trade, long after the in international transatlantic slave trade was made illegal in 1808, the city's illicit slave market thrived. So the International uh, Congress uh, passes a law to abolish the international transatlantic slave trade, uh, March 2nd, uh, 1807. Okay. March 2nd, 1807. And then that goes into effect January 1st, 1808. Okay. All right. Thanks agenda media for uh, your support. Really appreciate that. Thank you. 
Uh, this is a lot of work. People just don't understand. Uh, <laughs> um, and, 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 and I know I've said this before. I don't know how many people know this. And when I tell people this, they're surprised. Uh, so I do radio six days a week on 19 a.m. Superstation WFDF. I don't get paid to do radio. They don't pay me to do radio. Okay. Um, they have been on that radio station for five years. Some people have to pay for airtime. I don't have to pay for airtime because of my kind, but they don't pay me. All right. So everything I got to generate revenue to be able to keep doing all this stuff. Um, through the DVD lectures and the uh, online courses and, and uh, selling ads and all that stuff. They don't, they don't pay me to do radio. I wish they did, but you know, it is what it is. Um, when the war, uh, when the war broke out in 1861, there was even talk of New York seceding from the union itself. So the civil war starts 1861 with the attack on Fort Sumter. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Adrian. Um, with the attack on Fort Sumter, April 12th, 1861. Now, um, and these are, these are some of the things that we're going to deal with in the online course, even though we start in 1865, I'm going to take about 30 minutes or so and give you some background history to bring us up to 1865. The, uh, South Carolina is the first state to secede from the union, December 20th, 18, 1860. December 20th, 1860, South Carolina is the first state to secede from the Union. Six weeks after Abraham Lincoln becomes president-elect, okay? He's president-elect. He's of the Republican Party. The Republican Party is a newly formed political party. They were formed six years prior. They were formed in 1854, and they're formed by groups of abolitionists as a direct backlash to the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. The Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 dealt with, uh, because of westward expansion and land that was acquired uh, after the uh, 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 Mexican-American War, 1846, 1848, and uh, land uh, acquired from the Louisiana Purchase in 1803, things like um, the Kansas Nebraska Act of 1854, what this does is this leaves up to people moving into these new territories. It leaves up to them to determine whether or not they want to have slavery as opposed to it being dictated to them by the federal government. Okay, the Kansas Nebraska Act of 1854. And as a backlash to that, we're going to see the Republican Party form. Now, um, the Democratic Party exists at this time and the Whig Party exists at this. Well, the Whig Party is dying out. The, uh, they're, they're going to be members of the Whig Party who helped form, form the Republican Party. The Whig Party, W-H-I-G, is formed in 1834. The Democratic Party is formed in 1828. Contrary to popular belief, because I hear people say the Democratic Party created slavery. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? No, they didn't. The, the majority of the time slavery existed in this country, you didn't have a Democratic or Republican Party. Democratic parties found in 1828, they're known as uh, Jacksonian Democrats named after uh, President Andrew Jackson. And we see the Republican Party formed in 1854. All right. So as a backlash to uh, Lincoln becoming president, because the southern southern slaveholding states think Lincoln is going to free the slaves. All right. So South Carolina is the first state to secede December 20th, 1860. They're going to be followed by about six other states. 
And the Civil War is going to start April 12th of the following year, April 12th, 1861. So when the war broke out in 1861, there were there was even talk of New York, this, the, the, the state of New York, seceding from the Union itself. So entwined were the city's business business interests with the Confederate states. OK, they said this is about the money. Now, as the war progressed, New York's anti-war politicians and newspapers kept warning its working class white citizens, many of them, uh, many of them Irish or German immigrants, that emancipation would mean their replacement in the labor force by thousands of freed enslaved people from the South. Okay, so see, we see we have to pay attention to what's taking place because the same thing that took place here in 1861 and the game is being ran on poor white working class white people is being ran on them by the elite by the newspaper owners by the newspaper publishers by politicians and they're saying if the slaves are freed they're going to take your jobs. Well, it's the same game that the elite are running on, on us today and, and poor white people and things like this uh, 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 talking about uh, undocumented immigrants taking your jobs. It's the, it's the same game. Now, if they wanted to stop, but, but, but so let's back up. First of all, what they don't want to talk about is how U.S. policy to Central American countries for the last 50 years, and in some cases the last 100 years, have created the conditions, have helped to create the conditions that many people are fleeing from, from fleeing from in these Central American countries in the first place. Like, they don't want to talk about how the CIA helped to overthrow the democratically elected government in Guatemala in 1954. That helped to destabilize Guatemala. OK, there, there was a there was a piece from. Um, I think this was Vox.com. There was a piece from Vox.com that I've talked about before. See, they really don't want to get into this history. OK, it's not just Haiti. OK, we, 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 we can go through and look at these Central American countries that. Um, U.S. policies have helped destabilize and create these conditions that people are fleeing from okay now if you if if you want to uh stop undocumented immigrants from getting jobs here why wouldn't you go after the corporations that hired them and exploit their labor it's not difficult it's not that difficult now you know the corporations who are hiring them exploiting their labor why wouldn't you go after them in in and shut them down. Um, look at this article. Look at this article here. And you you can start by going to Donald Trump's uh, golf courses and resorts because he has undocumented immigrants working there. He got caught. People knew he was doing it. He got caught while he was demonizing them. He got caught exploiting their labor. Now, at the same time, prior to 
COVID-19. If you if you go to um, BLS.gov, Bureau of Labor Statistics, and read the labor report that comes out, uh, the jobs report comes out the first Friday of each month. If you go research that, if you go read that, every month there are between five to six million unfilled jobs. Every month prior to COVID-19, there are between five to six million jobs every month that go unfilled in the economy. BLS.com, Bureau of Labor Statistics, that's the Labor Department. BLS.gov, BLS.gov, Bureau of Labor Statistics, that's the Labor Department. So the, 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 the same game they were running on white people, poor white people back in 1861, is the same game they're running today. And then so they so so they, they were saying, hey, if the if we in slavery, slaves gonna take your jobs. Well, first of all, there were at least 262 skills, trades, and crafts that African people had in this country from 1619 to 1865, and we were doing the work largely for free. So most of those jobs we were already doing. Yes, if slavery ended, we could compete for certain for certain jobs also. But let's be honest now, okay? We were doing more than just picking cotton and cooking the master's food. But just as the elite were exploiting poor white people then, they're exploiting poor white people today. So if we if we look if we look at this article here from Vice.com, because nobody wants to really deal with this history. Very few people. Now Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez started talking about this history. And she called it out. People, people really don't want to deal with this history. The violence Central American migrants are fleeing was stoked by the U.S. Now, this is from June 28, 2018, for Vice.com, written by Cole Kasdan, K-A-Z-D-I-N. We're still dealing with the aftermath of atrocities committed by U.S. allies in Central America during the Cold War. Now, this is um, uh, uh, Ronald Reagan holding up a shirt saying, Stop Communism, Central America. This is from 1986, this picture. Okay. And, you know, this deals with the, the Contra rebels and El Salvador and all these Central American countries that the U.S., their, their, their policies to these Central American countries have been harmful and, and helped create the conditions that people are fleeing from. Then when they flee from the conditions, you want to criminalize them. But you don't want to talk about how you contributed to the conditions that they're fleeing from and the violence they're fleeing from. It's just like Donald Trump liked to talk about uh, Donald Trump liked to talk about MS-13. But Donald Trump didn't want to tell you that MS-13 started in Los Angeles, California in the 1980s. And then they went into Mexico. MS-13 did not start in Mexico and come here. MS-13 started in Los Angeles, California in the 1980s, the, the gang, the Mexican gang, MS-13. They started in Los Angeles, California, and they went into Mexico. He, don't want, he doesn't want to talk about stuff like that. So as courts, law enforcement, and the Trump administration, because this article came out when Trump was the dictator-in-chief was in office, and the Trump administration continued to sort out what to do with the steady stream of migrants either crossing the southern border illegally or seeking asylum, the roots of the current misery are often forgotten. The desperate border crossings often come from Central America's Northern Triangle, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, and are fleeing high homicide rates and violence in those countries. But this instability did not arise in a vacuum. 
Many historians and policy experts, policy experts are quick to point out that much of the troubles in Central America were created or at least helped by the U.S. government's interference in those countries going back decades. In other words, the foreign policy of the past has profoundly shaped the present immigration crisis. Uh, Elizabeth Oglesby, an associate professor of Latin American studies at the University of Arizona, said hundreds of thousands of people were displaced in the 1980s. People were fleeing violence and massacres and political persecution that the United States was either funding directly or at the very minimum covering up and excusing. People were fleeing violence and massacres and political persecution that the United States was either funding directly or at the very minimum covering up and excusing. We, we would call that the chickens coming home to roost. That's what we would call that. Violence today in those countries, she, she said, is a direct it is a direct legacy of U.S. involvement. Now, uh, Professor Elizabeth Oglesby spoke uh, to uh, Kasdan, the writer of this article, from Guatemala, which even today in 2018, when this article was written, is still feeling the cumulative effects of U.S. actions from over 50 years ago. Now, if you don't think so, so let's 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 just pause right here for a minute. We're going to get back to the other article in just a minute. This is pause right here for a minute. Still feeling the effects of what happened 50 years ago, Guatemala. If you've been watching my show, we talked about Jamaica in the news, petitioning, uh, putting, put, putting together a petition for Great Britain and Queen Elizabeth II demanding reparations. Cuba in the news, protesting over lack of protesting over the economy and lack of resources and food, things like this. Haiti in the news. Um, Ariel Henry was just um, uh, sworn in as the new president of Haiti after Claude Joseph stepped down and after Jovenel Moise was assassinated July 7th. And Haiti, Jamaica and Cuba were all countries that Christopher Columbus and the Spanish conquered in 1492 and 1494. We're still feeling the effects of what happened over 500 years ago because they were all colonies of Spain and then uh, the West and then his, the island of Hispaniola, the Western portion is gonna be taken over by the French and called Saint Dominique. And then 1791, uh, 1791 to uh, January 1st, 1804, you have the Haitian Revolution and, and the Haitians beat the hell out the French. 1803, you have the Louisiana Purchase of 1803, where, where France sells 828,000 square miles of land for less than three cents an acre to the U.S. for $15 million. And the U.S. is going to carve out about 15 states out of that. We're still feeling the effects of what happened 500 years, over 500 years ago. About 529 years ago, uh, 1492, Columbus uh, uh, conquers Cuba and uh, 1494, Jamaica and uh, Hispaniola in 1492. Also, his first voyage, 1492. We deal with this in, in the um, online course I teach ancient Kemet, the Moors and the Maafa 
understanding the transatlantic slave trade where they didn't teach in school. We go and deal with Columbus. We go all all throughout this and, and, and show you what Columbus went on his four voyages. He never came to the land we call the United States of America. He never came to the land we call the United States of America. The closest he came to the U.S. is Cuba, which is 90 miles away. If we're still if we're still dealing with the effects of over 500 years ago and what the Spanish and Columbus did. And then also Puerto Rico, Boroquin, Puerto Rico was conquered by Columbus as well. If we're still dealing with the effects of over 500 years ago, you think Guatemala ain't dealing with what happened 50 years ago? But this is what happens when you don't understand history. So Professor Oglesby, uh, so it, it said, it, uh, speaking from Guatemala, said even uh, and Guatemala is even today still feeling the cumulative effects of U.S. actions from over 50 years ago. When the CIA helped overthrow the Guatemalan, the democratically elected Guatemalan government in the 19, that was 1954. In the 1950s, Guatemala attempted to end exploitative labor practices and give land to Mayan Indians in the highlands. The move, according to now unclassified CIA documents, threatened U.S. interests like the U.S. Fruit Company, which controlled a good portion of land in Guatemala. But instead of citing economic factors, many in the U.S. cry, quote unquote, communism, communism, like dumbass Republicans are crying communism and socialism today. They were doing this back in the 1950s. Crying, but, but most of them can't tell you what communism and socialism is. And most of them back then couldn't tell you what it is either. The move, according to now unclassified CIA documents, threatened U.S. interests like the United Fruit Company, which controlled a good portion of land in Guatemala. But instead of citing economic factors, many in the U.S. cried communism, saying the saying the labor reforms were a threat to democracy. Wisconsin Senator Alexander Wiley, chair of the Foreign Relations Committee at the time, said he believed that a quote unquote communist octopus had used its tentacles to control events in Guatemala. In 1954, the CIA helped organize a military coup to organize Guatemala's democratically elected government and continued to train the Guatemalan military well into the 1970s. Quote, the war in Guatemala was really a genocide, Professor Oglesby said, adding that an estimated 200,000 uh, people were killed in the subsequent 36-year-long civil war, which stretched from 1960 to 1996. Quote, the history is important because it went so far beyond anti-communism. The purpose was to destroy people's vision of the future. It had a terrible impact on the country. Hundreds of thousands of people were displaced. Well, it continues today. In Nicaragua, El Salvador, and Honduras, Honduras, there are similar stories. Now, Honduras was one of the 
uh, islands that Columbus conquered as well. When in the late 1970s, the Nicaraguan resistance group called the Sandinistas overthrew the country's dictatorship that had been in power for over 40 years, the U.S. opposed the revolution. The U.S. backed the dictatorship and the U.S. later supported the rebel group known as the Contras. In El Salvador, the U.S. gave billions of dollars to the, the El Salvadorian government to fight the socialist Farabundo Marti National Liberation Front, FMLN, and used Honduras as a base to hold military exercises. So read the rest of this here. Let me get back to the other, other article dealing with 1863. But all this history is connected. Then they talk about Richard Nixon and the war on drugs that he declared June 17, 1971. And we know the war on drugs was a, a, an attack on the anti-Vietnam movement and attack on the African-American community. Adding to the article goes on to say, adding to the instability from the various civil wars the U.S. was involved in throughout the region, Richard Nixon's so-called war on drugs beginning in 1971 pushed cartels from Colombia into an increasingly unstable and impoverished Central America. The drug trafficking routes began to change and that coincided with economic uh, with economic crisis in the region and criminal networks that took up the trafficking that was displaced out of Colombia, said Professor Oglesby. She was quick to emphasize that while MS-13, the, the gang MS-13 garners most of the headlines today in 2018, and whose origins are in Los Angeles, not Central America, because when MS-13 started in the good old, good old U.S. of A. That's homegrown terrorism, MS-13, that was exported into Mexico. Quote, a much deeper problem for Central America are government-linked organized crime networks that come directly out of the counterinsurgency experience of the 1980s. Read this full article here. This is the history that people don't want to deal with. This is the history people don't want to deal with. This is what Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was talking about. It was, it was a few, it was a few people and, and, and it was some of uh, various um, uh, Lat uh, Latino activists and things like this. They were saying, look, you got to deal with the history of U.S. involvement in these countries before you start pointing fingers at people and, 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 and you know, yeah, you know, nobody is calling for open borders. Yeah, you have to have immigration policies, but well, hold on, let's, hold on, let's stop for a minute here, okay? And let's look at why they're fleeing, the conditions they're fleeing, who helped create these conditions? Okay, the uh, this is from Vice.com, the violent Central American migrants are fleeing was stoked by the U.S., Okay, now let's go back to uh, let's go back to this piece here. Um, uh, let's go back to this piece here from um, this is from which one is this? History dot com. Okay, 
All right. How y'all doing? How y'all like this type of information? So if you, if you like this type of information, be sure to register for my new 10 week online course that starts up Saturday, Saturday, July 24th, 2021. This is going to be 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. From the Civil War to the Civil Rights Movement and Black Power, we'll do it 1865 to 1968. Okay. And uh, each class will go through and analyze a, a, approximately a 10 year period of time and get deep into this history to understand what happened and how we got here to understand what the next steps are and policies that need to be put in place. Okay, because all this is the result of 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 uh, bad policies. Okay, all all this is the result of some some policies are good, but a lot of them are bad public policies. And the other thing that we have to understand is protecting gains that were made. We played the I played the clip from Cora Masters, who's the uh, uh, widow of 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 uh marion barry dc mayor dc mayor marion barry and that's from uh roland martin unfiltered uh friday july 16th when i was on Roland's show i'll be back on the show this friday i'm a panelist each friday on roland martin unfiltered and she talked about how uh what's going on right now with the fight for the voting rights act the, uh the the the, the for the people act and the, and the john lewis voting rights act all this stuff she said we fought this battle and she was involved in fighting this battle in 65. And she said, all the games we made, they've largely been taken back. And, and, and something that many of us don't understand is the concept of protecting games that were made. Many of us don't understand the concept that we have to protect games that were made. Okay, uh, I want to play this clip here. This is from, uh, let me cue this up. This is from Roland Martin Unfiltered. Let's go to this clip. Let me see. Is this the right one here? Let me go to Core Masters. I, I want you to hear this here. Which one is this? Uh, hold on. Okay, here we go. This is core. This is core masters right here. So, but to understand the need to protect gains that were made, you have to be able to assess the gains that were made and under, uh, understand that history. Okay, hold on. Where's that clip? Okay, here we go. Okay, we'll go to this just a second. I'm queuing that up.
17, 14, 15 the amendment, 1964, 65. And we're back here again. Are you kidding me? I'm madder than I've ever been. Death or vote. You're gonna have to vote. And I'm telling everybody, if black people stop from voting, everybody loses. It's not a black battle. It's a democracy battle. All the Democrats need to be out here. All the people of, of color and all the people of righteousness need to be out here. It's not a black battle. It's a moral battle. It's a moral law. They're trying to take everything from us. If we don't vote, we die. If we don't vote, Jim Crow. If we don't vote, separate bathrooms. If we don't vote, slavery. Okay, so that was... Um, that was at the um, Senate uh, office building, okay, the Hart Senate office building. Um, and that was the day that the sisters got arrested, okay, that Thursday that they, they got arrested. And uh, we know that Friday they, uh, they met with, the activists met with uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, okay. Read the article here from... Uh, read the article here from thegrio.com. We've talked about we talked about this here last week. Uh, Vice President Harris hosts Black women voting rights activists after their arrest. Okay, so read that, and it gets deep into this information. They have a picture. Okay, that's them with the uh, Vice President Kamala Harris at the White House in the meeting. This is the sisters here. This is Cora Masters over here. Uh, on my left, all right, um, widow of Marion Barry. Okay, so check out that piece. Check out that article. Okay, let's go back to this here. Um, let's see here. Okay. So this is dealing with the draft ride of 1863. We'll be here for a few more minutes. So as the as the Civil War progressed, New York's anti-war politicians and newspapers kept warning its uh, working class white citizens, many of them Irish or German immigrants, that emancipation would mean their replacement in the labor force by thousands of free enslaved people from the South. So they're saying, no, it's you no, know, you want to keep them enslaved. You don't want you don't want these black people to take your jobs now. Okay? So you wanna go along and, and you 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 wanna keep you we wanna keep them enslaved. Now September 1862, President Abraham Lincoln announced the initial emancipation proclamation. And we know the emancipation proclamation did not free the slaves, and I deal with this a lot also in the in the uh two and a half hour lecture I did dealing with the history of Juneteenth. Uh the initial emancipation proclamation stated that if the states in rebellion and the territories in rebellion did not come back into the union by January 1st, 1863, that uh, Lincoln would free those uh, slaves in those territories. OK, but since those people, since those territories seceded from the union, they had no authority over them. the union. The union had no authority over the Confederacy. So you can't tell them to do anything. You, you have no legal authority. They separated from your country, set up their own government. 
So you have no legal authority over them in the first place. Okay. Um, but in September 1862, Lincoln announced the Emancipation Proclamation, which would take effect early the following year, January 1st, 1863, con confirming the workers' worst fears. At the time, Lincoln's decision for emancipation sparked because confirming the, the uh, uh, workers' worst fears because Lincoln is threatening to free the slaves. If these territories don't come back into the union because the goal of the civil war initially was not to free the slaves it was to bring the south back into the union the south seceded from the union these 11 um states and this is in the south was the economic engine of the country the goal was to bring them back into the union okay not to free the slaves and border states like Maryland and Missouri and Kentucky and Delaware, they stayed loyal to the union. They were allowed to keep their slaves until, you know, um, the civil war ends, things like this. They're allowed to keep their slaves because they stayed loyal to the union. So at the time, Lincoln's decision for emancipation sparked protests among workers in the city, as well as soldiers and officers in New York regiments who had signed up to preserve the union, not to abolish slavery. Because the goal is to bring the South, the goal is to bring the South back into the Union. That's why they, they initially fought. Okay, we're gonna keep the Union together. The goal of the Civil War was not to abolish slavery. So you had you had men who were fighting on behalf of the Union, who felt betrayed, because with the Emancipation Procl Proclamation, the purpose of the war shifts. And now they start talking more about freeing the slaves. You got white men on by fighting on behalf of the union. Say, wait a second, this ain't what we signed up for. You talked about keeping the union together. New York federal draft law sparks unrest. Facing a dire shortage of manpower in early 1863, Lincoln's government passed a strict New, what's known as a, the Constriction, the Conscription Act of 1863, or the Conscription Law, the Conscription Act of 1863, which made all male citizens between 20 and 35, and all unmarried men between 35 and 45, subject to military duty. But is a catch? Though all eligible men were entered into a lottery, they could buy their way out of harm's way by hiring a substitute or paying $300 to the government, roughly $5,800 today, to get out of uh, having to fight in the military, you know, go fight in the war. At the time, that sum of $300 was the year, was the yearly salary for the average American worker, making avoiding the draft impossible for all except the wealthiest of white men. Because African-American men didn't have to be drafted. Compounding the issue, African-Americans were exempt from the draft. Compounding the issue, African-Americans were exempt from the draft as they were not considered citizens. So poor white men like, wait a second, hold on. 
Now, because see, this is July 1863. The Emancipation Proclamation is already in effect. They said, now you're talking about freeing the slaves and you want us to go and fight in the Union when before you were saying the goal is to save the Union. Now you're talking about freeing the slaves and the slaves are going to take our jobs and they can't even go fight in the war. And I can't buy my way out of this like wealthy white men can. So these poor white men went on a rampage like they did January 6th at the U.S. Capitol building. They were exploited by the elite once again, dumb as hell, can't read, snuff dipping. They were exploited January 6th by the ruling elite, by Trump and Rudy Giuliani and Paul Gozar and 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 uh, uh, Ted uh, Raphael Ted Cruz and all these all these people educated. They, they exploited then, dumbasses exploited back then, 1861, 1863. Also, riots over the draft occurred in other cities, including Detroit and Boston. But nowhere was as as badly as in New York. Anti-war newspapers published attacks on the new draft law, fueling the mounting anger, fueling the mounting anger of white workers leading up to the city's first draft lottery on July 11th, 1863. So the New York draft riot begins Monday morning, July 13th. For the first 24 hours after the lottery, the city remains suspiciously quiet. But rioting began early on the morning of Monday, July 13th. Thousands of white workers, mainly Irish and Irish Americans. Thousands of white workers mainly Irish and Irish Americans started by attacking military and government buildings. They were attacking federal buildings, just like they attacked federal buildings January 6th. Just like they attacked a federal building January 6th, they did the same thing in 1863, July 1863. Thousands of white workers, mainly Irish and Irish Americans, started by attacking military and government buildings and became violent only toward people who tried to stop them at first, including the insufficient numbers of policemen and soldiers the city's leaders initially mustered to oppose them. You mean they were outnumbered like they were January 6th? They, were, they, they, they overran the police like they did January 6th? By that afternoon, however, they had moved on to target black citizens homes and businesses. In one notorious example, a mob of several thousand uh, crazy ass people, some armed with clubs and bats, stormed the Colored Orphan Asylum on Fifth Avenue near 42nd Street, a four-story building housing more than 200 children. They took, they took bedding, food, clothing, and other goods and set fire to the orphanage. Now these are black, these are African American children. Why would you do this? This is you gonna steal food from orphans? You gonna steal clothing from orphans? They set fire to the orphanage but stopped short of assaulting the children who were forced to go to one of the city's arm, uh, almshouses, okay, which is a a, 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 a house for uh, the poor. Okay, built by organizations or charitable people, things like this. 
Now, in addition, uh, now the riots are going to cause violence and bloodshed. In addition to African-Americans themselves, the rioters turned their rage against white abolitionists and women who were married to African-American men. They turned their rage against white abolitionists and white women who were married to African-American men. White dock workers working on the dock of the day, watching the tide roll away. White dock workers long opposed to African-American men working on the docks alongside them. This is 1863. A demonstration against employers hiring black workers on the docks had turned violent earlier in 1863. White, white dock workers took the opportunity to destroy many of the businesses near the docks that catered to African-American workers and they attacked their owners of these businesses as part of their effort to erase the African-American working class from the city. This is at the same time slavery is going on, the civil war is going on. You, you're trying to erase the African-American working class from the city. Uh, let me go back to this picture here of the uh, burning of the orphanage also. Okay, let's go back to this. Okay. And this is a, a drawing of the burning of the orphanage as well. All right, now. By far the worst violence was reserved for African-American men, a number of whom were lynched or beaten to death with shocking brutality. A number of these African-American men were lynched or beaten to death with shocking brutality. In all, the published death toll of the New York City draft riots were 119 people, though estimates of the actual number of people killed reached as high as 1,200 people. Now, the draft riots ended uh, because New York leaders struggled with, with the task of containing the draft. Governor Horatio Seymour, S-E-Y-M-O-U-R, was a peace Democrat, and the peace Democrats, or Copperheads, uh, were opposed to reuniting the Union during the Civil War. Um, and they, in uh, uh, some of them appear sympathetic to the rioters as well. And Governor Horatio Seymour appeared sympathetic to the rioters. New York City's Republican Governor George Opdyke wired the War Department to send federal troops, but hesitated on declaring martial law in response to the rioting. On July 15th, the third day of the protest, rioting spread to Brooklyn and Staten Island. The following day, the first of more than 4,000 federal troops arrived from New York regiments uh, who had been fighting in the Battle of Gettysburg. After clashing with the rioters in what is now uh, the Murray Hill neighborhood, the, tr the troops were finally able to restore order. And by midnight of July 16th, 1863, the New York City draft riots had come to an end. Now, the aftermath of the uh, and the legacy of the uh, New York draft riots, uh, in addition 
to the death toll. Uh, the riots had caused millions of dollars in property damage and made some 3,000 of the city's African-Americans, uh, African-American population homeless. Some 3,000 African-Americans were homeless because of these stupid-ass people, these insurrectionists. The New York draft riots remain the deadliest riots in U.S. history, even worse than the 1992 Los Angeles riots and the 1967 Detroit Rebellion. When the Colored Orphan Asylum attempted to rebuild on the same site after the riots, neighboring property owners protested and the orphanage would eventually be relocated to a uh, to a sparsely settled area uh, north of the city that would later become Harlem. OK, it's going to be they're going to uh, relocate to a uh, to Harlem. Stunned by the riots, the abolitionist movement in New York City revived itself slowly. And in March 1864, less than a year after the draft riots, New York City saw its first all black volunteer regiment in the Union Army. Much with the uh, 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 Union Army uh, marched with pomp and circumstance through the streets before boarding their ship in the Hudson River. Okay. Uh, New York City saw its first all black volunteer regiment in the in the Union Army march with pomp and circumstance through the uh, streets before boarding their ship in the Hudson River. But despite the meaningful uh, victory. Despite the meaningful victory. The draft riots. Uh, would have a devastating impact on the city's African-American community. While the 1860s, while the 1860 census recorded 12,414 uh, African-American New Yorkers, 12,414 African-American New Yorkers in the 1860 census, by 1865, the city's African-American population had declined to 9,945, okay? the lowest since 1820. All right. So that deals with the history of the New York draft riots of July, 1863. Check out this piece here from history.com uh, from uh, April updated April 16th, 2021 history.com is the official website of uh, the history channel. Okay. We have to get out of here. Uh, be sure to visit, uh, be sure to register for the uh, new 10 week online course uh, that I'm teaching on Saturdays, 3 p.m. to 5 p.m. starts up Saturday, July 24th, 2021. Visit our website, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com, AfricanHistoryNetwork.com. And when you scroll down the, the home page, you'll see the information for the uh, online course. Click register here. It takes you to the next page. Click on enroll. And uh, as soon as you register, you can start watching the uh content uh classes on sale uh eighty dollars regularly one hundred thirty dollars we do the classes live all the sessions are recorded you can go back and watch it over and over again okay we'll post a link here again so you can go ahead and register for that there's uh, archive content that you can start watching as soon as you register all right and then also you can support us through uh, uh if you want to, if you like this type of information you want to support the african history network dollar sign the AHN show through Cash App, dollar sign, the AHN show through Cash App. 
then also through PayPal, paypal.me forward slash the EHN show. All right. Remember, uh, at the African History Network, we focus on educating, empowering, and inspiring people of African descent throughout the diaspora and around the world, because right now it's correct wrong behavior. Uh, it's not over till we win. We're kind of forever. And uh, we'll talk to you uh, tomorrow. Peace. Black on Purpose Television Network. Yes, Black on Purpose Television Network. All black, all positive, all the time. The largest black-owned streaming television network in the world. Bringing our people together worldwide. Controlling our messages, our stories, our way. Black TV, the way it should be. Black music, black history, and more. 30-plus channels, thousands of shows. Black on Purpose Television Network, subscribe now. Gain knowledge in minutes from insightful summaries of progressive and socially conscious books. Blacklisted gives you access to curated content that'll satisfy your curiosity to learn and understand different perspectives. Empower yourself through inspirational and actionable ideas. It's easy to read or listen to on the go. Blacklisted. Empower yourself. Start your free trial today. Digital Dandelion's technical solutions works with businesses like yours to create an operations manual for your business, which is something many businesses don't have. According to AARP, more than 30% of small business owners are over 50 years old. Many business owners want to retire by selling their businesses or by passing their businesses on to their children. However, according to Forbes Investment Advisors, many retiring owners attempt to sell their businesses for retirement fail. You cannot sell your business without a business manual. Your children also cannot inherit your business because there is no way to run it. Your business does not have to die when you leave. Their business Bible products will give you the tools you need for a thriving business that can make you money even after you retire. Are you looking at increasing your business's annual revenue? Digital Dandelions can help you make at least $100,000 in annual revenue and expand your business. Speak with them today about solidifying your business. Visit DigitalDandelions.com today and get a free 30-minute consultation. Hi, I'm Joel Wilson, President and CEO of JCW Computer Consulting, LLC, a technology implementation firm with over 20 years of satisfying customers. We offer a full spectrum of industry top-tier branded services. We are an authorized partner or reseller for Lenovo, Zoom, T-Mobile, Microsoft 365, and Surface tablets, Google Workspace, Acer, Asus, Samsung, PCmatic security software, and many more. Our online store features laptops, Chromebooks, computers, printers, accessories, and software. Businesses, Take advantage of our free one-hour Zoom tech consultation and know we offer top nationwide high-speed internet service providers, voice over IP, and cellular phone services. Home users, don't miss our current in-stock Chromebook inventory. Please visit us at jcwcc.com or call 215-879-6701. 
We all know the cannabis industry is headed toward an uprise in the past decade. What happens when there is a brand that brings this uprise in a blow? The cannabis industry welcomes her uprise. Hustle her hemp. Delivering excellence with pride is her watchword, and how you choose to embrace it makes it a priority. From cultivating rich cannabis into exquisite and tastefully finished CBD products to delivery, Hustler Hemp leaves no stone unturned. Hustler Hemp's mission is to empower women of color by building business and creating legacies, uniting beauty, health, and business. We are a pure definition of how we want the CBD industry to become in the future. While we are redefining innovation, we bring the same energy to improving the quality of life. Hustle Her Hemp is the new Uprise. For 25 years, the Black History 101 Mobile Museum has carried on the rich legacy of the Black Museum movement in America by showcasing original artifacts of the Black experience at colleges, universities, K-12 schools, corporations, libraries, conferences, and cultural events, making it the most traversed Black History mobile exhibit in American history. Dr. Khalid El Hakim is the founder of the Black History One-on-One Mobile Museum, and he is a highly sought-after public speaker on topics of Black history, social studies, education, museum studies, hip-hop, and race relations. Dr. Khalid was named among the change makers for NBC Universal's Erase the Hate campaign and listed as one of the 100 men of distinction for black enterprise. He recently founded the Michigan Hip Hop Archive on the campus of Western Michigan University. The Black History One-on-One Mobile Museum is currently scheduling in-person and virtual exhibits nationwide. For more information, please contact Dr. Khalid Al-Hakim directly at 313-645-4197, 313-645-4197, or visit their website at blackhistorymobilemuseum.com. That's blackhistorymobilemuseum.com. You can also email him at bhistory101 at yahoo.com, bhistory101 at yahoo.com. 